HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hey, everyone. This is David Tatashore, lead engineer and studio manager of the Heritage Radio Network, and I'm reaching out to ask for your support during our end-of-year fund drive. A contribution in any amount supports our weekly programming and our mission to make the world a more equitable, sustainable, and delicious place. Plus, you'll receive exclusive member benefits like monthly playlists, discounted event tickets, party invitations, and more. So if you like good food and you love good food radio, throw a little dough our way. Make your gift at heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. Happy holidays from all of us here at Heritage Radio Network. Today's program is brought to you by the Christmas Tree Farmers Association of New York, partnering with Grow NYC to make farm fresh trees and wreaths available at green markets. For more information, visit christmastreesny.org. I'm Laura Stanley, host of Inside School Food. You are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this weekly journey through culinary history. And today I invite you to consider the menu, the printed menu. The names of the dishes and the types of food, the language used to describe the food, not to mention the interesting art often found on the front. According to my guest today, Henry Voigt, the menu, to a certain degree, illustrates the evolution of American culture be they from restaurants or hotels or private organizations, cruise ships or trains. And Henry has looked at a lot of menus. In fact, Henry Voigt is one of, if not the, country's most foremost authority on American menus. He has a vast collection dating back to the time when printed menus first began to appear in America. Henry is a food and culture historian and speaks and writes about many of the stories old menus have to tell. He has a blog, he keeps a blog, called TheAmericanMenu.com, on which you can find many of these stories. Welcome, Henry. Thank you for having me. All right, so what, well, before I, I, I have to ask, before I get anywhere, how big is your collection of menus? <laughs> well, I would say, I haven't counted them, but I would say over 5,000. Wow. Under 10. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's well, a wide okay. range. And, and 
when we're talking about menus, these come in so many different forms, from a sheet of paper to a big cardboard placard to... Uh, they, they, they come in all sizes, and, and one of the reasons uh, I haven't counted them is, you know, what is a menu? For example, the uh, hotel stewards in the 19th century had the menus hand-sewn into volumes and kept them as a record. So I have a few of those oh. books, and they have hundreds of menus in them. So is that one menu or hundreds of menus? So <laughs> That's right. That's right. Interesting. Um, what's the oldest menu that you have? The oldest menu is from the Astor House in New York in 1841. It's from the uh, Gentleman's Ordinary, which meant the Gentleman's uh, Dining Room. Dining Room, right. The oldest one in the New York Public Library, I believe, is from 1843, from the Ladies' Ordinary at the uh, Astor House. Uh, the Museum of the City of New York has one from 1839, and that's from the Ladies' Ordinary. So mm-hmm. a lot of them come, date back to the Astor House in New York. Yeah, because menus, I mean, that's, and that's when menus first started to appear. Yeah, that's we correct. We did, I mean, the print, we're talking about the printed menu. That's right. You know, not, not a chalkboard or, a, you know, somebody announcing what the menu is, but obviously a printed menu. Yes, there's only, I only know of six or eight that predate 1840. Uh, a couple of them related to Lafayette's visit in 1824. Uh, Boston Society has a couple. Uh, Museum of the City of New York has a couple. But there are very few that predate 1840. Well, now you say um, Lafayette's visit. So many of the the menus I know that are some of the more colorful ones in your collection, and I'm sorry that, that um, our listeners can't see all of them, but they will be able to see a few that are posted and go to your blog. You can They can find them there. Um, but so many of these fabulous menus, decorated menus, were from special occasions like um, political occasions and um, and dignitary visits and yes, um, historical events, anniversaries of historical events, celebrations of progress. It was one of the underlying themes for all American Athema, and um, and then everyday menus. You know, menus that were never meant to be saved um, or had some personal meaning to the person who saved it. But then, of course, to the next generation, they had no value, no meaning, and a lot of them got, most all of them got tossed. Yeah, and you mentioned that um, in your, I noticed I read that somewhere in your blog, that unfortunately a lot of people saved menus, but subsequent generations didn't think they were important. Yeah, it, it just, uh, they had a personal meaning to the person, uh, and then uh, the next generation, they they had no meaning, so there was no reason to you save mean it. The, med- the, the menu from my birthday 10 years ago is not that important. Well, sometimes they have something like first date, you know, or atom bomb job from oh. the Manhattan Project. Oh. So, Well, now that, that would be interesting. That's a good one. So the inscriptions are very interesting, but they, they uh, relate to the person who experienced it. All right, so why – well, let's, let's talk a, bit, a little bit about – why, how you got interested in collecting these. How long have you been collecting them for a long time? Right? Well, about 20 years. I think uh, what caught my attention was the uh, advent of online auctions. Uh, hmm. People who held on to them, not because they had any meaning, but they felt they had some intrinsic value um, held on to them. But when online auctions came on, uh, they formed markets, very small markets, efficiently. So even though there was only three or four people collecting these things in the country. That formed the market, and people opened their drawers and closets, and these things started to spill out. I I saw it as a unique opportunity, uh, and so they started collecting them at that time, and uh, a lot of that material has dried up Mm. in recent years. You rely on uh, ephemera dealers and, and, and rare book dealers and so forth today, but 
and that was the opportunity that kind of sparked my interest. Interesting. Well, and and prior to that, you were telling me before the show that you, in your previous life as a <laughs> as a business executive, and you traveled around the world quite a bit. I did. I I did business all over the world in uh, China and Japan and Russia and South America and. Uh, in a lot of other places, and I could see the centrality of culture and food and, and relationships between people and, and, and how um, that all worked. And that was fascinating to me uh, in terms of, uh, particularly in places like China, uh, eating the foods and connecting with people by eating the foods. And so uh, I was always interested in the history of everyday life and, and in history in general. I was interested in food and wine, graphic design, uh, former print collector, so that, that interested me. So all of these things, that uh, culture, all of these things came together in this particular format. So it had all the things that I'm interested in in one place. So, uh, Oh, that's great. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, now, your collection is primarily American menus or American uh, menus about American culture? American culture, yeah. It's not geographic American. I've, uh, American expatriates, businessmen, the military, uh, tourism, I follow Americans all over the world uh, where it has influenced our cuisine or we've influenced someone else's cuisine. Uh, but it's really around American culture. Mm. So what, what, can, what is it we can really, um, well, what do we learn from menus? If we just take a menu and we read it, what are some of the things that you look for in a menu? Well, uh, first of all, is it culturally or historically significant? I look for markers of uh, race, gender, or uh, class. It's all seen through the prism of class. And then there's the food itself. Is it local, regional influence? Uh, is there a foreign influence? Uh, and, uh, and then there's the, uh, the locale, the place, um, what's, you know, uh, the importance of the chef um, in, in more modern menus. And then uh, the graphic design typography so mm -hmm. it, it goes down that list uh, as you try to decide what's important and why yeah well you mentioned that so many of your um, menus are not just restaurant menus but they come from uh, steamships cruisers and 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 i yeah. know the artwork on those always they, they for a while they tended to be like this all this art nouveau poster style i know they're beautiful <laughs> yeah um, then that's interesting. You can see trends change, just as I'm sure, looking at them, you see the trends change in foods um, and the language we use to describe foods. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> what, has there ever been a time when the description of a dish has been quite as verbose as it is today? <laughs> I get, no, exa I get exhausted it, reading a menu yeah, sometimes. No, it's, you know? Yeah, no, it's gone... Uh, the, uh, I think if you look at some of the 19th century menus when the language of upper class uh, menus language was French and some of those very long descriptions of the dishes but nothing like today in terms of the, the provenance of the uh, of the foods where they've come from right. uh, the history of how they were obtained or Farmer Jack's and farmer cow exactly. in the backfield yeah, right? yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I love that stuff because it won't last forever and it's, it's, a, it's a marker of our times and our, it's a reflection of our values Right. It will become, you know, part yes. of someone's collection at exactly. some point, right? Exactly. Uh, well, you mentioned that so many of the early menus, um, and I was looking through some of the items in your collection, and, of course, 
the old menus all tend to be in French. Well, French was the codified cuisine of the time, of the certainly of the upper class. I mean, one really, if it weren't translated for you in print, you were in a little bit of trouble if you didn't know the language. Well, yes, that was one of the barriers for entry. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, so you talk about class. Yeah, yeah, you know. yeah. You wouldn't uh, you wouldn't go to a restaurant if that where the menus were in French. Now, as um, the country became wealthier and uh, it was less class-oriented as it was just if you had a lot of money by the 1890s turn of the last century, uh, they put French on one side of the menu and then English on the other. Nice. So that you still <laughs> were classy, but you could read the you menu. Could, you could know what you were eating, right? <laughs> so uh, they accommodated the, new, the nouveau riche with, yeah. with that adoption. And when, about when did that appear, did you think? I, you see that in the mid-1890s, and by 1900, it's in full swing um, because there was a great explosion of personal wealth around the turn of the last century. The formation of the trusts, people cashed out. They moved to New York. They had a lot of cash for the first time of their lives. They'd been rich, but they'd owned a factory at the edge of town. Now they sold out to the trusts, and they came to New York. Uh, they weren't part of Mrs. Astor's crowd. And... Uh, and they, they didn't speak French. Mm-hmm. So um, it really 1900 in yeah. round numbers. Which is around the time of the restaurant boom, too. So, I mean, that's, yeah, restaurants Absolutely. were in full swing. Well, then. yes. Yeah. It, it really influenced um, the restaurant scene, particularly in places like New York and San Francisco and Chicago, where these people moved. Well, and you mentioned something I wanted to, to refer to. You mentioned that um, early, some of your early uh, menus were the men's ordinary from the men's ordinary and one from the ladies' ordinary, yes. which, if listeners have heard all of my shows, <laughs> but there have been a couple in particular that I've dealt with um, ladies dining on their own, which was not a very easy thing to do, right? No, it wasn't. Um, <clears throat> and so if, in upper-class hotels, I mean very top hotels, they had separate facilities for unescorted women. However, in New York, even if you go back to the 1850s and 60s, there were restaurants that catered to wealthy women who didn't feel any need to be escorted. They right. just went there with their friends. Right. But they were specifically for women. That they was, were for it, women, yeah, yes. That was, that was restricted. That was interesting. Um, you, uh, I know that you have been extremely generous with your collection, in, um, and you have aided so many people writing books and, and uh, doing research. And Who in particular contacts you to use your collection most often? Well, it's... it's um, it's usually people who have some project. They're writing a book or a paper. And so it could be a graduate student, historians, um, food writers, culinary historians, uh, restaurant critics, uh, a wide range of people. Um, even merchandisers have approached me and said, I want to use some of the images. And I put this collection together because it was a unique opportunity to have a continuous narrative of American history and culture. And so it fills the gaps in the public collections. And... And if they don't have access to the collection, they can't really finish their projects the way they would like to. So uh, I've always made it open and available to anyone who wanted to use it. Hmm. And do you think that they are, what it was the most, I don't know, I'm trying to think of some unusual situation that someone would be looking for a particular old menu? It could be anything. I mean, uh, Winator in Delaware sends me graduate students from time to time. There was a young woman there from the University of Michigan who was doing something on corn. So 
um, I was able to find some things to help her. I mean, in the late 1880s, as an example, um, corn was the theme of church suppers and library associations that had fundraisers. And for about two or three years, it was corn coffee, corn cakes, corn dogs, corn this and corn that, and sometimes with illustrations of corn. And it was just one of these little mini themes. Yeah, but you and, can, I, can, I can imagine how, <laughs> how menus would be so intrinsic in that in that search because how often does corn appear and you know exactly. in a, menu, in a dish yeah. that's, that's so incredible. some people have very narrow projects uh-huh. other people uh, are more broad but it's they don't overlap a lot and uh, some people you know share their projects very openly and uh, and that helps my collecting process because what's important and why is really a consensus of expert opinion and yeah. it's like in the arts what's quality in art it's the consensus of expert opinion so um i learn from these historians and these food writers and uh and they they learn from me and and they can use the material however they want so mm-hmm. it helps me other people are a little more cautious well um certainly uh, economists have records of of the uh um the rise in in uh cost of living over the years <laughs> however nothing like seeing it in print with something that you recognize like a cup of coffee or a plate of roast beef i mean th- those are to me quite striking to see you know 35 cents for a you know a, a plate of roast beef with a side of potatoes i mean well and you have to adjust the prices for inflation and for um you know, cash, because uh, people, we didn't always have as high a cash economy as we do now. People didn't have money necessarily. And uh, and in for inflation, so over time, <clears throat> the, the prices go up and down. But uh, in the long term, they track inflation. Yeah, well, in, and you mentioned cash. Let's talk about that a little bit, because I noticed something very interesting on one of the menus, and that was something cost two and a half cents. Yeah. <laughs> and so there was a half cent. Talk about, I mean, you can actually well, trace currency, right? Absolutely. Before 1857, the United States did not have enough gold and silver to mint all of its own coins. So it mostly used foreign coins. And uh, the Spanish Real and other currencies, uh, the Copec and and so making change in the early 19th century was very difficult. So the standard unit was 12 and a half cents. And it was called, in New York here, it was called a shilling. Uh, it was called a levy in Pennsylvania. It was called a bit out west. And, uh, and so the standard prices were six and a quarter cents, 12 and a half, and 25 cents. Huh. And so uh, it wasn't until 1857 that things were then banned from use because the gold was discovered in 1849. And by the late 1850s, we had enough gold and silver to mint all of our own coins. But before that time, um, it was all foreign currency. So you could really tell when it was a pre-gold rush type of menu, you right? can. depending on what the price is. Yeah. Um, that's, that, that's really interesting, and that really caught my eye. Uh, you know, it's the language used to, um, to describe food on the menu also brings us back to the question of class. And most of this, what this tells us in in looking at, um, is very much through the lens of class, because who else would be dining somewhere where there would be a printed menu? Um, But then there are boarding houses. There are, you know, she said, ordinaries. People were, you know, that were working. um, Stiffs had to go and get their lunch. I mean, and so if they had a printed menu, that would be it. But then, so the quality of the menu varied as well, correct? Oh, that's right. And, uh, 
you know, there are a lot of, uh, in the 1880s, for example, a lot of what they called 15-cent houses where, you know, the dishes were 15 or 10 cents. And uh, those menus weren't really printed up, but for advertising, they had little trade cards. And on the back of the trade cards, they had their menu with the prices, and everything's a nickel, a dime, or, or 15 cents, roast beef, 15 cents. Now, the quality of it, the quantity of it would have been limited, but, yeah. um, but they advertised in that way. Yeah. And the paper, I, mean, I was thinking quality of the paper as well. Um, and you mentioned that it wouldn't even be on paper. You said just print it on the back of a card. Yes, yeah. print it on the yeah. back of a card. But some I know would be, you know, clipboards or tablets or, or something, you know, <laughs> yes. that they would have. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I noticed that even some of your menus are, were saved by, you could tell by individuals because they are coffee stained or tea stained or you know, yes. <laughs> a little bit of food dripped on. Yeah. A circle from a wine glass or something. Yeah, so it was, uh, yeah. Menus, you have to, as a former art collector, you have to put that aside, the quality issue in terms of condition because. Uh, menus do get beat up a little bit and yeah. uh, have to look at the rarity and kind of look the other way when it comes to some of these stains. Well, that certainly <laughs> lends authenticity to the yeah. fact that it was <laughs> it was a primary source. Yes. <laughs> right. That's pretty good. Um, you have brought a few with you, um, and we're going to take a really short break. And when we come back, uh, we're going to talk through some of these menus and see what we can find. So stay tuned. Ever wonder where your Christmas tree came from? Now you don't have to. New York State-grown Christmas trees are now available in New York City. Trees grown on farms here in New York State are harvested just a few days before arrival to the city. Trees cut close to home stay fresh longer, and trees cut close to home travel less, which reduces fuel consumption of delivery vehicles. Did you know that buying a real tree helps to sustain agriculture in New York State by supporting local farmers and keeping important open space in agriculture production? The Christmas Tree Farmers Association of New York is partnering with Grow NYC to make farm fresh trees and wreaths available at green markets in Brooklyn, Queens, and Manhattan. So when you shop local this holiday season, you can include the tree in that list. For more information and a full list of locations, visit ChristmasTreesNY.org. Hi, we're back, and I'm talking with Henry Voigt, an American menu collector, and um, the American menu collector. <laughs> and Henry has brought a couple of uh, menus with him. What have, what have you got there that we can look at in terms of age and, and uniqueness? Well, the first one, we'll go chronologically here, is from the LaPierre La House in 1854 in Philadelphia. It was a brand-new hotel, very fancy, and this kind of relates to the question, what do you look for in a menu? And I think this has everything you look for in a menu. So it has all the bells and whistles, and I thought I would bring this as an example. Uh, first of all, it's a beautiful menu. It's, uh, wow. The, the border is lithographed uh, by somebody by the name of Eugen Ketolinus. He, was, uh, he did lithography work that no one else in this country could do at that time. It looks like a page from an illuminated manuscript. Absolutely. You know, it's got it's the gold leafing. and It's been hit with three stones wow. and uh, gilded. And, uh, and so it's, it's just a gorgeous, a gorgeous uh, document. It comes from an ad a celebration uh, of the 172nd 
uh, landing of, anniversary of the landing of William Penn, and it was by the Pennsylvania Historical Society. So just imagine, it wasn't like the 200th or the 150th. This is the 172nd uh, anniversary of the landing of William Penn, and the menu is very, very elaborate. It has... Uh, you know, uh, lots lots of game dishes. It's five species of ducks. Um, it has a lot of vegetables. Uh, so much food, Henry. You didn't warn me about this menu. I didn't bring my reading glasses. The <laughs> print is really, really tiny. It's, it's small. <laughs> it's small. Yes. <laughs> but um, it, it has a lot of vegetables. And one of the uh, vegetables that caught my eye was uh, cardoons with cream. That's a thistle type plant that the early settlers had eaten and wasn't very prevalent by 1854 anymore so it was like a theme dish that's interesting because and it's now come back into favor you know now oh, it has. Yes. oh yeah Cardoon. well it's very popular <laughs> in the italian cuisine oh and i and it's now I, i've been noticing it more and more yeah you know, on menus and this is what 18 1854 and um then it has these ornamental uh, sculptures they made out of sugar, and it, it, it has right. the landing of William Penn in a Russian cathedral and a group of Italian peasants. And but the one that really caught my eye, and I have no idea what it looked like, is titled "The Genius of America, Protecting the World." That was one of the sculptures. That's that, one of the sculptures. sculptures. I can't. Oh, yeah. the confectioner, ornamental yeah. confectionaries. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting because I'm looking just at the at the subtitle: soups, fish, relèves, um, and cold ornamented cold ornamented dishes so they were all decorated quite nicely they call the entrees side dishes which is interesting they haven't worked out all the terminology of a menu yet so the entrees are actually called side and dishes and the meats were either boiled or roasted yes and the relishes of course relishes were very important whether they were red skinned radishes <laughs> <laughs> celery or pickles um, and then of course game was separate from everything else and yeah. as you mentioned the vegetables pastry and the ornament that's that's it's very elaborate but of course this was quite a banquet i mean this was yeah. you know washington's uh, now there's a couple of ice creams and there's some pastries basically what they call desserts at the end is is, is nothing it's just nuts and fruit it, this is an indicator that there were no women at the banquet who liked the sweets they had to give them well the if you, you look at this <laughs> these menus and you see a very elaborate desserts then you know that women yeah. were there that was just part of the protocol. But it does tell us that um, obviously by 1854 it was, it was service à la russe so it, menus were all um, described in that in courses and not served you know as a buffet all at exactly, once. Exactly. You know? Exactly. Yeah. Here's one from Delmonico's uh, in 1885 it has the Statue of Liberty on it but <clears throat> the Statue of Liberty was still in 214 crates in the, the ship that's shown on there um, on the menu. Because it had just arrived. Um, so they had a dinner inauguration. A big celebration. <laughs> and the, the statue was not even erected yet. No, they, they show the it, but they show it with the pedestal and everything. Uh -huh. uh, and the menu is, uh, uh, was a very fancy menu following the protocol of the times that you just mentioned with the... There was a shellfish. This was in June, so it was clams. But then there were you know, the soups, the fish, a little hors d'oeuvre. The entrees from the heaviest, from uh, to, from the lightest, from excuse me, from the heaviest to the lightest, and then a sorbet. And the sorbet here is called uh, sorbet Young America, hmm. and it was an orange, lemon, pear syrup, very elaborate thing, and a, a little sugar boat, and uh, that was typically served at bon voyage dinners. But here they put an American and an 
French flag in the little boat. Yeah. Uh, even on the menu, there's an American and a French flag on yes. top of the menu, yes, yes. yes, with a boat in the background yeah. and, uh, and the statue. And, of the and then beautiful. in the second service, after the sorbet, there's ah. a um, there's the usual uh, game dish, and then uh, and the cold dish. Is that would be the second service? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. No prices on these menus, however, because no it prices. was a, because it was a dinner. It was a it was a dinner. It was a subscription dinner. dinner. Yeah. I think they. Probably paid five dollars to attend this, uh, not yeah. not counting the cost of the menus or, or anything else. Yeah, that's great. We, I mean, we have that on our website. Okay, as well, right? Now, the this this menu uh, from the uh, arrival of the um, Statue of Liberty is was made by Tiffany's, their art department. As is this menu from. Uh, and just to let our our listeners know, these menus are both like little um, like greeting cards almost. Uh, I would say what this is, uh, five by seven, with like a two. five by seven photo with tied at the top with two ribbons. And so you open it up, um, you know, like a, like a greeting card or a, you know, type of yeah. placard. And now this was made again, like I said, the, um, art department of Tiffany's wow. and, um, this October 9th, 1989. So it has yeah. the name of this diner. It's individual for this diner. So the pic- the painting is a very finely rendered watercolor. And his name, Mr. Grace. This Mr. Grace. was W.R. Grace. He was a two-term okay. mayor. And now the one at the in the New York Public Library, um, it was for General Horace Porter. And you can see that the I brought a copy of that menu. You can see that it was um, the menus were the, the individual for that diner, including the painted scene. So it was to. to Totally individualized. So, you, if I, so if I were someone special, I got my own photo. Everybody like got everyone, their own. Something painted were, specifically for me. Specifically for you. And the, different, and the reason for that is there were only 50 diners here, and this was hosted by William Waldorf Astor, who was the wealthiest man in the world. So he could have a painting done for each Everybody of his had their own <laughs> menu. They were um, uh, General William Tecumseh Sherman was there. Grover Cleveland was there. It was 50 people. And the purpose of the dinner was to discuss... Uh, how to secure the World's Fair for New York instead of Chicago. Ah. Because Astor and, and Vanderbilt's with the railroads and hotels wanted the, ho- wanted the fair for New York. Nobody else did, but they did. And uh, they were up against the Swifts, the Armors, the uh, McCormicks of Chicago. So it was a mano a mano, and Congress was the decider. And, uh, and this was a dinner uh, where they were trying to get their act together and see if they could somehow secure the fair for New York. So, so <clears throat> it was a very uh, special dinner. If you see, if you look at the menu, you don't see the word Delmonico's. Um, it just has William Waldorf Astor's monogram there. Oh, interesting. Yeah. yeah so but it was held at Delmonico's. It was held yeah. at Delmonico's, yeah. Um, what, the other thing that I noticed that was very interesting is um, the men- even though they're separate paintings for each guest, the menu is exactly the same. The menu is <laughs> exactly the same. And um, and, and there, this one has wines, the wines that they served um, next to each dish, which is interesting. And it has it's, cigarettes. And cigarettes, I noticed that. That's because cigarettes. the rolling machines uh, were put in in the early 80s, and in the late 80s, uh, again, if there were no women present, they put they served cigarettes. After sorbet. After the sorbet, <laughs> and uh, that, that custom ended. But that was, uh, for a short time, something new, and that was 1889. It was right at the time of that. Now... Derek Goldstein had asked me years ago to write an article for 
Gastronomica, and she said, choose any menu. So I sent her this one and that one and the other one, and she said, no, no, you decide whatever you want. So I, I picked this one because I thought, oh, this will be swell. It's Gilded Age, it's Delmonico's, it's Tiffany's, it's, uh, you know, political corruption. There's lots of stories here. And uh, I waltzed off on vacation. I came back with only three weeks left, and I ran my finger down the dishes, and I could feel the blood draining from my head because, oh, my God, <laughs> this is all wrong. Uh, first of all, it was in the wrong order, and you oh. didn't change the order of the dishes willy-nilly, but the cold dish appeared before the sorbet, and so um, it was something obviously special. It was a piece de resistance. It was always this piece de resistance, but this was something else, and I looked it up in Ranhofer's book. Well, it wasn't in Ranhofer's book because oh. he only made it perhaps once. Well, Ranhofer was the, the chef of Delmonico's, and he wrote uh, the, the name, the, the big The couple. Epicurean. Epicurean, right. Yeah, 1,500 pages, and he didn't have room for this menu, huh. for this recipe. So I had to deconstruct that. And which one? Which was that? Was the, the pâté de foie gras? Yes. And, but the, pâté they, de foie gras, I, Bellevue. Bellevue. So I theorized that the, the little pieces of foie gras and truffles were all encapsulated individually with aspect when they put together this large sculpture and fortunately I have a large enough collection I had a menu from the next night and uh, they would have wasted nothing and there would have been a lot of little scraps um, well, that's over. very modern of them yeah yes. so, oh no they wasted nothing at all yeah. so it, I could see I could I could follow the scraps in subsequent banquets and so um, I was able to figure that one up, but the one that really grabbed me was um, the teal duck with celery mayonnaise. This was just all wrong. The wealthiest men in the world would have eaten canvasback duck, which tasted ah. like celery. Why would they have a teal duck teal with duck. a celery mayonnaise? This doesn't make sense. And I was scrambling around. I drove down to Haverty Grace, which isn't too far from our home, and went to the decoy museum. They thought I was a raving madman who had just come <laughs> off of I-95. And uh, finally, uh, my deadline was approaching. And finally, I found a fish and game report from Pennsylvania, which said they didn't have the same problems they had had the previous year with flooding on the Susquehanna. What had happened was the Susquehanna had flooded, and it had covered over the wild celery near Harvard de Grace. There was about 25,000 acres there, a very shallow uh, Chesapeake Bay area. So the ducks flew over, and there was no aquatic, you know, it was none of these aquatic plants for them to eat. So they kept going to North Carolina, where they ate clams and other mollusks. And, of course, when they do that, they taste like other ducks. They didn't have their unique taste. Well, the market hunters shot them in North Carolina, but instead of sending them to New York, they shipped them back to Harvard de Grace, to have them shipped from there to New York. To pass them off. To pass them off, but the French chefs weren't fooled. They tasted it and took them off the menu that year. So Interesting. Yeah, but I had to do that all in real time. I mean, it wasn't literally... And, and the teal <laughs> duck, and what does the teal duck taste of? It's, it's a, I think all the other ducks have a similar taste. I know that... It's gamey, like a game. Yeah, they uh, uh, ran off the chef... Uh, Preferred the blue wing to the green wing teal duck. Uh-huh. Well, big deal. I, that wasn't teal helping wing. me. Right, right. right. <laughs> Color is not that. quite it. <laughs> so, <laughs> no, so uh, I, I finally was able to piece well, see, this I together. asked you, what can we learn from the menu? And I see we learned, we learned about the weather, too, and uh, things that occurred that changed the food. That's interesting. One of the things that, that uh, you say about ephemera, which is a piece of paper that had a purpose and then was meant to be discarded and survived by some accident, is that it's unwitting historical evidence. And this is a beautiful example of that. It's a 
hotel menu. Uh, it says hotel. There's a. It's in a. It's a very simple menu. It has an artist's palette, and then 102 West 52nd Street. It has champagnes on the back, and it has a very um, upper upper class menu. Doesn't tell us where. Who? It, I mean, it what? They tell us, it tells us where, but not what. It doesn't say what. And the prices; those are Delmonico's level, or even more. There's a four dollars a quart for champagne, which would have been. 50 cents more than most places. And the specials, this is a, a type printed, typeset printed menu, but the specials are handwritten in in a very elaborate of, of the time um, script. So I looked at Filet Mignon, a dollar fifty. Yes. Yeah, so it was very expensive. And um, by the end, it's not in the it's not in the directory for the city. It's got an address, and um, the champagnes are are expensive, but it's, it's not a bordello because it says hotel. And, uh-huh. and champagne would have been five dollars at a bordello. There was a famous one on West Fiftieth Street called the Studio. So I contacted a writer by the name of Richard Zacks who wrote a book, Island of Vice: Theodore Roosevelt's Quest to Clean Up Sin-Loving New York. Uh-huh. And he sent me a one page from a Vice report in 1890, which described this place. It was called the Pallet Hotel, and it's a place oh, where. Oh, and there, you know what's interesting? The picture on the cover of the menu it's is very coy. Painters, it's palette. coy, and it's where upper class men and women who are married to other people uh-huh. conducted their affairs. Their and trysts. so, and so they would um, they would arrive in a handsome cab. The woman would have a veil. They would run up the stoop and hit the electric bell. This is all described in the um, in the vice report. And the electric bells were something new in eighteen about in eighteen ninety two. And they would. The door would open immediately, and they would be ushered right inside and away from public view. So that was uh, a little bit of the well, special service there. <laughs> That's interesting. <laughs> and some of the and thinking, so they bothered to eat. And <laughs> so the um, some of the specials that are, are, as I said, written handwritten in in this elaborate script: um, filet mignon Portuguese, half chicken Vienna style. And soft-shell crabs. I've noticed soft-shell crabs do appear quite often in the menus, and this is not this is from uh, not in the Delaware, Maryland region, but in New York. Yes, yeah. In the in the years before refrigeration. Right, right. Interesting. And green corn. Yes. <laughs> that was an interesting one. Green corn and celery. Okay, celery was always, you know, a spe- that was a very special. It was hard to, to grow. Menu. It was hard to grow. And yet it was one of the very early um, American crops uh, yeah. in, in, in American gardens. Yeah. yeah. It's quite a trick, though, to try to grow it. Yeah. Interesting. Well, Henry, this has been a treat, and I can't wait to get these posted, these menus posted, up on our website so listeners can have the benefit of, of looking at them as they listen to the, the show. So be sure to log on if you're listening through another um, device like iTunes. Go in and log on to our website at heritageradionetwork.org to the show page of A Taste of the Past, and you will see these menus posted on that page. Henry, it's been a pleasure. Thank My you pleasure. so much. And um, you can read more of Henry's stories and see more of these menus also on his blog, American, the Ameri- theamericanmenu.com. Henry, thank you. And thank you for tuning in, listeners. You know, you are very important to us. And uh, Heritage Radio Network is a listener-supported network that brings you thousands of hours of really great talk, interviews, and information on a variety of topics about food news and views and so much more. 
So again, log on to our homepage at heritageradionetwork.org and click on the beating heart in the upper right corner to donate. Your support keeps us going. Thank you. for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.